0: Lord, we thank you again as we're going to study in John's gospel. Lord, we thank you that, oh man, the word is living, it's active. It speaks to the very core of who we are. Lord, and I pray that you would not only bless this time in the word, oh, that, but that it would be you that speaks through me. Lord, we also pray for Sean and his family that they could rest, feel recouped, that they can come back with fresh vision. Lord, I just pray over his, his wife and all of his boys that you'd give him uh, extra energy. But again, Lord, we thank you for white, uh, white Flag Calvary and the work that you're doing within this area. And Lord, we know that this is your church. All this, it belongs to you. You're, you're the leader of the church. And so God, I pray over the shepherding, the leadership, and recognize that you're the one who's going to do all the work. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. John chapter 11, we're going to be covering verses 38 through 57 this morning. Of course, we're going to finish the chapter in its entirety. It seems like an odd area to kind of pick up in, in John's gospel. Uh, Why not start at the beginning of John chapter 11? Why the middle part? So I thought it would be appropriate to kind of give you a minor backstory of what has happened up to this point in the text that we're going to be covering. If you've read John chapter 11, you'll know that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus and his posses, the disciples, they're all hanging out, and a messenger came from Mary and Martha to Jesus. And that messenger said to Jesus, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick, referring to Lazarus. And so, here's Mary and Martha. They're thinking, our brother's sick. We've got to tell Jesus. They anticipated that Jesus wouldn't dawdle. He would right away say, let's get out of here and let's take care of him. But then Jesus made an interesting comment the moment he received the news, Lord, behold, behold the one whom you love is sick. Jesus said, Lazarus' sickness is sick. It's not unto death. His sickness is not unto death. And so, The text tells us right when he received that message that he waited two more days until he finally decided, I'm going to go to Judea and we're going to take a visit to see Lazarus. But by the time Jesus and the crew make it, Lazarus had already died. The funeral procession was already taking place in Judaism. It wasn't like common day, to, you know, today when it comes to funerals. You go to the funeral, you leave, you mourn for that week. The funeral procession lasted for days. And so here's Jesus arriving, and the very first thing he heard from Martha was, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And when I read the text, when I hear that, you, you can hear the frustration in her voice, I I sent you a message. I sent you a message and you didn't come right away. And then Jesus says something so profound to to Martha. Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And then he makes this segue into basically saying, hey, and by the way, I'm also the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he will die, will live. And this is so fundamental, especially in the the text that we're going to be in this morning. Jesus could not have made that comment if he merely healed Lazarus from a distance. You guys picking up what I'm throwing down here? Because if it was a simple, hey, uh, the servant, the brother, Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick, Jesus would have been like, boom, he's better. He needed to come and establish the importance that he's a conqueror over death, that death itself could not have its grip over this situation, and he's gonna drop some miracles like they're hot. You guys ready? Let's look at verse 38 of John chapter 11. It says this. So then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. First thing I want you to notice in the beginning of that verse is the wording. Again, groaning in the spirit. Second time that happened, we know that Jesus came to the tomb. He's seen Martha and Mary crying and that caused his spirit to groan. And in the Greek, that translation literally means, get this, to snort like a horse. It's the idea of, of to imply anger and indignation. He's looking at death in the face at the tomb of Lazarus and it is hurting him. It's hurting him in the core. And then he says something shocking as he's groaning in the spirit. Look at verse 39. He says, take away the stone. Take away the stone. Now, guys, I just attended a funeral um, just recently. A lot of us in here, we've been to funerals. They're emotional. They are hard. They are oftentimes unbearable. Sometimes funerals, crazy things happen my grandfather's funeral, one of our family members came to the, the, the funeral uh, plastered. And it was so sad, because you're watching just this time to mourn and grieve, and then another family member comes in just completely and utterly plastered. And this person said some offensive stuff. Now, I want you to imagine yourself at this funeral profi- uh, with, with Lazarus and the sisters, and everyone's mourning, it would be shocking to hear someone come and all of a sudden say, I'm here, but take away the stone. Which makes sense why Martha responds the way that she does to Jesus' funny request. Look at verse 39. So Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, uh, Lord, my translation says, um, Lord, just kidding. Lord, by this time, there's a stench for he's been dead, look at the wording, for four days. Now, I think the King James Version does a better rendering of this translation. I love it. The King James Version says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) It is, it's a funny response for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's funny because how blunt and honest she is. Like, Lord, you're crazy, that boy is stinky in there. No way, no. But it's also funny Because if you know the context of John chapter 11, she gave a very spiritualized answer at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus says to Martha, Martha, your brother will rise again. And if you know in John chapter 11, Martha will say correctly, yeah, I know he'll rise again, but but I also know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Martha was the one that if she you know, was riding the camel would have the sticker in the back that says all things are possible with Jesus, he is the way. Like She's the one who would rock the bumper sticker. But in this moment of the challenge, she, she is realizing, yes, I know I said that. But Jesus, you just asked me to take away the stone and that boy stinks. But wait a second, didn't you just say that I know whatever you ask God, God will give you you know, it's interesting about that because, again, you hear the pastor speak up here, you hear Sean speak, you hear guest speakers speak, and there are times when we're, we are, we're sitting in our chairs, we're affirming, we're amening to whatever the pastor is saying. I agree with that, but it's in those moments, and i soak this up. It's in the moments that Jesus wants to demonstrate the impossibilities of his power Is in the moment that we can easily forget the promises that we just said amen to on Sunday to the pastor who was just preaching from God's word. That very thing that God was trying to penetrate our heart with. Martha had already forgotten that she she was the one that said, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And so Jesus is calling her out. All right, take away the stone. Take away the stone, but Lord, he stinketh. And oftentimes it's those moments when God desires to do that great work in your life, in your marriage, for some of you in your time of being single. It's in those moments when the Lord comes to you and he says, let me take away this stone. Let me have access fully to your heart. I know you're a brother and sister. Some of you have been following the Lord for years. And I'm not, I'm not merely speaking of salvation here, which is just as equally important. I'm speaking to the believers right now. That there are times that God says, let me access everything. Because you've put something up that's caused me to not be able to fully access it. Take away the stone. And oftentimes, you know what we say? Oh, Lord, but it stinks. It stinks in there. And we say that because for some of you, for weeks you've been hiding things. For months, for some of you, a habitual issue you've been hiding for years. It stinks in there, Lord. Why do you think the psalmist once said, David, the guy was a poet. He said, search and know my heart, Lord. Find any fault within me. That is a hard verse to say. You know why? Because it's basically saying, Lord, take away the stone. Have access. You find anything that's not of you? Oh, show me, Lord. You sure? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, slow down. Okay, one at a time. And it just keeps filing on, but it's appropriate. It is appropriate. Lord, I want you to find the source. Search and know my heart. Take away the stone. But Lord, he stinketh. Look at Jesus' response in verse 40. And Jesus said to her, did I not say, did I not say to you that you would believe, that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? I love that wording. I'm a parent. Did I not say? that Parents, I feel like, do you say that to your kids a lot? <laughs> I was at Target with all three of my girls yesterday. And I told him before we walked in, we're going to eat. I promise we're going to eat after Target. We'll get some popcorn, but that's it. But I need you to try to keep your cool in Target, OK? And we're in Target. They destroy the popcorn, and like people are looking at us like, you let those things out of the house? Yeah, we do. And they're like, we want more. I know, but I, I remember what I told you? I told you we're going to eat afterwards. More popcorn. Did I not just say that? I know. I know you want more popcorn. Uh, but Jesus, what is he referring to? What is he saying? He's actually referencing what had happened at the beginning of John chapter 11. In fact, look at your Bibles. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. This is what he's referencing. Jesus said, after Martha said to him, "Yeah, I know that that, that he's going to rise again on the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says, verse 25, Well, I'm the resurrection, and I'm the life, and he who believes in me, though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at her straight in the face. At the end of that verse says, do you believe this? And you know, remember what she says? I do believe, and I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And so here's Jesus now bringing back that conversation they just had. Did I not say, did we not just have this conversation that if you believe, you would see the glory of God revealed. Did I not just say that? Question, does Jesus need the faith of both Martha, Mary, and the funeral attendees in order to demonstrate his power? The answer is no. He doesn't need their faith to demonstrate the miracle. Jesus is fully capable of demonstrating the miracle with or without the faith of Mary and Martha and those who are attending. But this is where I think a lot of Christians miss out. I really do. I think this is where we miss out the most. Listen to what I'm about to say. Each person in this room, I myself, John Geraci, each person in here, you will see as much as you allow Jesus to show. Let me explain. You will see as much as you allow Jesus to show and demonstrate in your own life, meaning your faith will determine the amount of God's power that is going to be demonstrated in your own life. Because, you see, the issue isn't whether or not God has power to demonstrate. He has unlimited power. He is sovereign. He is everywhere at once. Jesus holds time in his hands. The issue, in my opinion, is whether or not we're going to take those steps of faith in order to see that power demonstrated. That's why we have verses in the Bible that says, without faith, it is actually impossible to please him. You know what's interesting, too, about church plants? Is everything on on paper doesn't make any sense to do it. (laughs) It's insane. But it's in those moments where you take those steps of faith. And even for those, the the pilgrims, the pioneers of a church plant, that it's the same, it's not just for the senior pastor that God's saying that promise. Did I not say if you believe in me, you see my power demonstrated? It's for you guys, too. Did I not say that if you believe and trust me that I'm leading and speaking to your pastor, Sean, that you're going to see my power demonstrated through white flag Calvary. You see, Jesus, he doesn't need our faith to show his true power and the validity of his deity. But guys, you ready for this? Don't you want to see it? Don't you want to see it though? I mean, don't you long for those days when you remember when you first became a Christian and it was so sweet. Those moments when you opened the Word. And it hits your heart so hard. Faith does, in fact, come by hearing and hearing by the word, folks. You want to build your faith? Oh, eat up the word. Eat it up. Eat it up and more. Because, again, oftentimes we talk about power as if it's just this concept in church. We understand it in theory. The pastor quotes it from the Bible. But it's just a concept. It's not a reality. It's not something we've implemented into our day-to-day life because we, yeah, we'll see that power demonstrated on Sundays and the Thursdays and the connect groups that you have, but that's it. But man, guys, l- hear what I'm about to say. What if we lived as if the same Holy Spirit that caused and allowed Peter to walk on water, that gave Joshua the command to make the sun stand still, that's gonna, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. What if we, at any moment, could access that power and watch it in our own life? again we're sitting here like that would be great but what if it's not just a concept what if it was a reality we would be unstoppable jesus before he ascended into the you know he dies on the cross he comes back he's with the disciples and the disciples are just they're thinking we're okay we're going to establish the earthly kingdom now jesus is back and jesus right before he ascends says something so profound that was promised both to the disciples and for us today. Listen to this. Jesus tells them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They only knew the Holy Spirit as a concept until that moment that Jesus imparted that gift. And you see that on the day of Pentecost in Acts. And all of a sudden, it's a reality. They understood it and they couldn't get enough of it. If we lived as if at any moment we could access the same Holy Spirit that was both accessible to the, the apostles and to Jesus, and we accessed it today, oh goodness, church, we would be unstoppable. Now the question is, what is holding you back from this unstoppable power? And here's Jesus confronting Martha, that there's something holding her back, that if you just believe... Did I not say that you would see the glory of God revealed? Take away the stone. Take away the stone. Yeah, before I do, it stinks in there. What's going to happen next, Jesus? I mean, I'm I mean, I just, I'm a, I'm an outline guy. I just needed to know the future and stuff. And you know what's interesting about that? We kind of joke and laugh, but we think by knowing the outcome of decisions that we're making, that it's going to make us stronger Christians. It'll give us more faith like I'll believe more once I understand the outcome. And a lot of times that's the very opposite. The very the, it's the substance of things hoped for and the and the evidence of things that are not seen. Faith in it of itself is making decisions when it doesn't make sense on paper. You know what I'm saying? But you know what happens at the end result? God gets the glory. God gets the glory. And you know again I'm thinking about I told you I'm a church planter my wife and I church planted guys there were times that I wanted to quit so badly There were times at the beginning I was like this is so much harder than what glamorous Instagram posts from other pastors have shown This is a lot harder Church planting is much like parenting You think you know what you're doing and then you're radically humbled realizing you have no idea what you're doing and God teaches you something new each and every day. Oh man, but you know what guys? Like parenting and like church planting and like you guys serving here at White Flag Calvary, there are times it's easier to quit. But you need that reminder of God that he will tell you, not the pastor. Did I not say that if you believe that you're going to see my glory revealed? And some of us would want to throw in the towel on our marriage, the job that we have, our integrity, purity, what's the point, might as well give up. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is going to say the same thing Did I not say, that if you believe and you trust and you follow him, that the glory of God can still be revealed. It's never too late. Oh, guys, it's never too late to take away the stone. Never too late to take away the stone. So even though Jesus is confronting them on their unbelief, he says, take away the stone anyways. So look at verse 41. What do they do? They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Huge step of faith. That's a huge step of faith. And again, it's removed. I can just see the people like, okay, what are you going to do now? And I just, I again, I visualize when I'm reading the gospels and I just see it. I don't, you know, I think it's easy for us to be like, they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. I think they took it away and they looked at Jesus like, I really hope he does something huge because this is so, I mean, when you think, of, again, when you think about Judaism and, and how, both culturally, not only is it, were they not allowed to touch that dead body, the stench that was coming from that tomb, no Febreze could take away, right? So they're looking at Jesus and now Jesus explains why this took place. Verse forty. 1 and 42. So Jesus, he lifted his eyes up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, look at this next part. I said this, that they might and that they may believe that you sent me. If you were to look at John's gospel, in its entirety, and you were to ask yourself the question, what, what is the point of this book? Why was it written? Who, to whom was it written to? And what do we get from it? If you were to encapsulate in two verses the theme of this Bible, the Gospel of John, it's found at the very end. Call me crazy, but this is a Bible study. Look at your Bibles at John chapter, I think it's 21. 20. Look at John chapter 20. Why is Jesus performing this miracle? Why? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John the author says, truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't even written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus, look at this, is the Christ. Not only is he the Christ, but he is the son of God and that by believing you will have a life in his name. There it is. Here's Jesus. Take away the stone. Why? What's the point of this? And here's Jesus. He's praying to the Father and he's saying, now that I'm here before them, I'm, I, 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 I'm praying that not only will they see the power and the validity of that I am your son, but that they believe. And that by believing they would have life in Jesus's name. Another thing I want to point out in verse forty-one and forty-two is that Jesus says specifically, "Lord, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me." I love that verse. Gosh, what an ins- you know? It's just because he was so confident when he said it. I mean, have you guys ever looked at someone's life and you were you just it was infectious? Their prayer life. And their time in the word, and you just looked at it, and you longed for I want that. Before I became a Christian, I was 15, and my wife, who at the time was just a girl in the church, by the way, I've known Carolyn for 20 years, and we started dating when we were 15, and 15, I gave my life to the Lord, and I saw her, and I just thought she has something that I don't. She was in love with the Lord, and I wanted it, I wanted it. So bad. And maybe some of you know that but even right now. You know that person, man. They are so passionate for Jesus. Their their faith challenges you. You know their their love for Jesus is just as infectious. And I look at Jesus and I hear His prayer and I hear the confidence of His prayer. Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and because I know you have heard me. I know you're hearing me and what I'm about to say, and that just that confidence of. Lord, I'm about to pray and I know you've heard me. A lot of us misinterpret that and think he doesn't hear us because he doesn't answer it the way we want him to answer it. Oh, far be from it. We were just singing the worship song and it reminded me of Jeremiah 33.3. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer and I will show you great and mighty things that you don't know. But how many of us are confident in that prayer or the prayer of one psalmist? Listen to this. O Lord you have heard the desire of the humble and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ears, Psalm ten seventeen. Oh, that confidence in that prayer. Oh, you have heard the desire of your servant. And so here's Jesus. He prays that prayer right after he tells them to take away the stone. First question. Why did Jesus ask them to take away the stone? If Jesus does, in fact, have resurrection power, we're about to hear him say, in a moment, Lazarus, come forth. Why not Jesus just, like, snap his fingers and, like, the rock explodes and all of a sudden, like, Lazarus comes out, like, hey, guys, you know, kind of a thing. He could have been like, not today, stone, and boom, it blows up. It could happen. I'm going to give you a biblical example of how that could have happened. Where am I going to go with this? Anywhere. Doesn't matter. Sean's not here. I can say whatever I want. Move on. Do you guys remember the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree in the Gospels? The Bible tells us he's making his way back to Jerusalem. The Bible says he became hungry. I would imagine he was hangry. You know what hangry is? So hungry, you're just mad. You know what I'm saying? And he, he sees this fig tree, which by the way, I don't understand that. I've been to Jerusalem, figs, that doesn't, I mean, if that coffee see where i'm going with this if that tree had coffee dispersing from it be like all over it but jesus that fig tree looked delicious the fig tree specifically had leaves smothered on it to indicate there should have been figs on the tree and did jesus find figs on the tree he didn't find one single fig on the tree very deceiving and most people would say i would imagine the disciples would have been like let's find another tree But the Bible tells us as Jesus was experiencing this hanger pains, he yells at the tree. May no fruit ever come from you again. And again, I could just imagine the disciples be like, Jesus, cool down, let's just go find another tree. And Jesus is like, no, not today. The Bible says in the moment that he cursed the fig tree, that no fruit would ever bear from it again. The Bible says that the fig tree withered at once, which must have been in and of itself a spectacular, spectacular sight an amazing sight but here's my point couldn't jesus have done the same thing with the tomb and just looked at the rock and said something like you shall never ever cover a corpse ever again and then it blows up and everyone's clapping and i mean i just that's how my brain works at least that's where it goes with it it could happen jesus could make stones explode one one last example when jesus was coming down from the mount of olives and the people they're worshiping, they're they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Bible tells us in that moment when all of that was happening that the Pharisees started huffing and puffing, and they're mad. The audacity, they thought. They're looking at Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they couldn't believe that Jesus was allowing public worship to take place like that upon himself but then jesus looks at the pharisees who are huffing and puffing red in the face and he says to them i tell you that if these should keep silent that the stones will immediately cry out so if jesus can make stones cry out for him jesus can make stones explode for him it was a literal five minute tangent that i really didn't have to go through but i wanted to because i can because i'm the one with the mic chris don't turn me off all right so But I want you to notice back in John chapter 11, the stones don't explode. He doesn't do that. He makes the people remove the stone. Question, why? Why though? I'm going to tell you why. Because only Jesus can raise the dead. And only we can remove the stone. In the same way, Jesus, he calls you to be fisher of men. He catches the fish. Or excuse me, we catch the fish. But he cleans the fish. You guys picking up what I'm throwing down here? You can't save someone. You can't raise someone from the dead. Only that resurrection power that can come from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He's called us to be fisher of men. Catch those fish, but let him clean the fish. Here's my point. He wants you to participate. Isn't that great? Jesus wants you to participate in the miracles that he wants to perform. He wants you to participate. But we first have to take away the stone. And if, again, if that isn't shocking in and of itself to say, take away the stone, look at verse 43. They take away the stone, and then in verse 43, he says with a booming voice, now when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Again, I've, I've been, I, I've seen and heard shocking things at funerals. And again, you attend a funeral, you understand, you see people angry at funerals hurtful, remorseful, sobbing uncontrollably. Even when they're given the eulogy of the person, guys, it brings you to tears. You find out stuff about that person you never knew about at funerals. They're powerful. They're emotional times. And I wonder what the people thought the moment they heard Jesus say, take away the stone, but then to say, Lazarus, come forth. And I want you to think about that. He's talking to Lazarus. He's speaking to a dead body as if it were alive. It had been four days since Lazarus had been in the grave. It's not this like he's been gone for an hour he's dead. He's been dead for four days. And if it wasn't weird enough to say, take away the stone, now it's, you know, hey, Lazarus, yo, we got to go. Get up, come on. It seems both offensive and weird But if you think about it, it's neither one of those things because Romans 4.17 declares concerning Jesus, he's the one who gives life to the dead, calls into existence the things that don't exist. Again, here's the concept that I'm talking about of power and the Holy Spirit, but it's not a concept, it's the reality. He gives life to the dead. He allows and can do everything that's consistent with his character and his spirit. Lazarus, Come forth. Again, in those days, they didn't embalm people. When someone died, they wrapped them up in bandages, pieces of cloth. Every single appendage had to be covered, and they would put spices in the tomb in order to, again, help preserve the mummification process and the stench that would come from it. And like I said, no amount of Febreze was going to take away the smell that was going to radiate from that tomb. And so you can imagine the shock of hearing Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. Not only must have been bizarre, but you can imagine the reaction of the people of what happens next. Look at verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths. His face was wrapped with uh, with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, "Loose him and let him go. So here's Jesus, he's fighting death at, at Lazarus' tomb, and then he's just, I just, you know, death won't have its grip on you. I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, and though he, he who dies will live, come forth, Lazarus. And I'm telling you guys that Jesus didn't do this as a parlor trick. He did it in order to demonstrate not only the validity of his deity, but to demonstrate that he has power over death. That death itself... As we know it, the Bible says it's the point that every man dies, and then after this, the judgment. You're dead, and you're gone. You're in the grave, but Jesus is saying, I have power over death, even death itself. I am exactly who I've been telling you, that I am, I am the Father's Son, and I am here so that you might believe, in that by believing you will have life in my name. I've conquered death, and not only is he going to conquer death through raising Lazarus, he's going to conquer death at the cross. And I I, I just, I, I have to tell you guys this with confidence. That if you are here and you've given your life not only to Jesus and you serve the, the Most High and you call Him your Lord and Savior, guys, death no longer has its grip on you either. Death no longer has its grip on you. You are no longer marked by condemnation. You are no longer lost you're found now you were dead now you're alive and that's why jesus promised type it's because i'm the resurrection and i'm the life that's an amazing promise another thing i want you to notice at the end of verse 44 that jesus tells him he instructs them Loose him let him go he doesn't say look at him struggle someone instagram this someone post this on youtube this is going to be amazing you know he he has the people participate yet again in the miracle he made the people unwrap him And I want this to hit home for you guys, too, because a lot of times churches feed me, now I'm leaving. But church and ministry does not just merely consist of getting fed, but it also involves you guys getting involved in people's life. Listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus asked them to remove his bandages, which by all accounts probably was smelly, was probably messy. But you know what's interesting, too, about ministry? Jesus wants us not only to get involved in people's messy lives, but he wants us to help take off the old bandages, help them understand this lifestyle that they used to embrace and indulge in, that they're marked now by the blood of Christ, and that very thing that they thought was appropriate is no longer the very thing that should define them. And it involves us helping them take off the bandages makes me think of what paul told the church at colossi listen to this he tells them in colossians 3 8 and 10 he says but now put off all such things put it all off anger rage malice slander abusive language from your mouth do not lie with one another excuse me do not lie to one another big difference do not lie to one another Since you have put off the old man with its practices, verse 10, he says, and have been clothed, you've been clothed with the new man that is being renewed in knowledge. According to the image of the one who created it. Oh, what a privilege it is to be a part of the ministry, folks. There are times, and Sean would never admit this, but I'll admit it for him because you guys should keep coming to the church. (laughs) There are times and you look at the Lord and you're like, why are these people though, Lord? (laughs) And I mean that in the most loving way. But you know what happens as the Lord renews you and shows you things. And your pastor, as he's looking at your lives, and some of you might have messy lives, the Lord is using Sean and the leaders of this church because the bottom line is this. This church exists so that we can walk in that newness of life together, so we can bear the burden together and share the reward together. Jesus looks at the people. He's seen Lazarus coming out, wobbling out, and he's like, Loose him. Loose him. And so look at the outcome in verse 45. The many of the Jews who had come to Mary and they had seen the things that Jesus did, what did they do? They believed in him. They believed in him. And this is why I believe Jesus said at any moment, man, he turns grief to joy, brokenness to restoration, hate to love, unbelief to belief and truly trusting in him. He takes these devastated people at a funeral and turns their grief into praise. Must have been wild. But there is a Debbie Downer to every group, as many of you know. Look at verse 46. But some of them, they went away to the Pharisees And they told them the things that Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, well, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, then everyone's going to believe in him. The Romans, they're going to come, they're going to take away both our place and the nation. Now, guys, it's easy to passively read the scriptures and be like, let's move on. But this, to me, just, it just blows me away. They just witnessed a miracle. they just witnessed resurrection power with their own eyes. They watch a putrefying, decayed body, a corpse, have new flesh and start walking around, having life again. And how is it that they don't even believe after seeing that? Even in verse 47, they're the ones that admit. Yeah, what? What are we going to do? For this man works many signs. They can't. They can't even deny the miracle and what took place. Yeah, they're like, yeah. There's Lazarus. He was dead four days ago, and there he is, eating a falafel. I mean, I mean, he. That the guy's alive. I mean, they're trying to process this. And you would think that these guys, the Pharisees, who are supposed pros of the law, would have gone back and remembered what Moses had not only commanded them, but prepped them for Jesus is coming one of them should have been like you know what guys I remember Deuteronomy the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen but instead of listening they plotted against him instead of listening they plotted how to murder him they even said well if we let him alone like this everyone will believe in him yeah they are absolutely correct in that assessment That's exactly what Jesus wanted to believe. That was his message. Hey, did I not say that if you believe in me, and that through believing, you're going to see my resurrection, not only power, but the glory of God revealed. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Jesus, he's generating followers, the religious leaders, they're fearing, okay, now the Roman government's going to get involved. Now they're not only going to get... involved they're going to view jesus and these jews following jesus as a significant threat and that's why they say in verse 48 the romans are going to come they're going to take away both our place and the nation i want you guys to note something they're not referring to their actual physical dwelling place where they reside sleep and call home they are referring to the temple and i want you guys to think about that just for a moment the religious leaders had had made such an idol of the temple that they were willing to murder Jesus in order to preserve it. You realize that, right? That's how they're plotting. That's what they're thinking. And what's even more insane than that, the audacity of the statement that they made, is that they viewed the temple as, and you can read it. John put it right there in big letters, their place. They're going to take away our place. They viewed the temple as though it belonged to them. And what an important lesson, not only that you guys need to know and remember and be reminded of, the church does not belong to the pastor. It belongs to Jesus Christ. You, every person in this room, you're the church. Sean does not own you. There's this thing called the Emancipation Proclamation that prohibits him from doing such things. He will go to jail. You belong to Christ. The church does not represent a building you meet in. It's the people who meet in that building. And again, the audacity that these Pharisees would even make a comment like that. Because to them, the religious leaders, they were more concerned about the nation's current current standing rather than the people standing with God. Oh, and may we never become that way, guys. May we be so more consumed with the love of Jesus that we are so fixated on loving the people and pointing people to Jesus and the goodness of his grace that he has transformative power to heal marriages, restore individuals and bring them to life again. You're fisher of men. You guys catch the fish but Jesus is the one who cleans the fish. Look at verse 49. So one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, he said to them, actually before we go on, Caiaphas, couple things we want to know. We're, we're told, first of all, that he is not only the high priest of that year, but you need to understand that the high priest was like the supreme leader of all the religious leaders of the Israelites. And so the, the, often the, the high priest, he had this hereditary lineage that was traced all the way back to Aaron. FYI, he was the one who was the brother of Moses. And so these guys came from the Levite tribe. And because the high priest held the leadership position. He was like the, the head honcho, if you will. He was the one who oversaw and had the role of overseeing all the responsibilities of all the other lower-ranked uh, priests, if you will. Anyway, so here's Caiaphas. Uh, he's being the high priest that year. He, he says to them, well, you guys know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that, that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this... Look at verse 51. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52. And not only for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So we've got these two parties talking to one another. The chief priests, those are the Sadducees, and then you've got the Pharisees. The Sadducees weren't incredibly spiritual people. In fact, they were quite liberal in their way of thinking. They didn't believe in the Bible, or at least uh, most of the the Old Testament. They They embraced the Torah, the writings of Moses, but that's it. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They certainly didn't embrace resurrections, which is why they're so upset right now, as you can imagine. But then you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees weren't very political as well. They were, they were strictly religious. And FYI, the Pharisees had a very good beginning. We give a lot of flack to the Pharisees, but they actually were the ones who brought the nation of Israel back to the precepts of God, to the word of God. And then something happened where they elevated the traditions of man over the word of God itself. So a lot of times when we hear Pharisee, we're like, you Pharisee! They had a good beginning. They had a good beginning. ADD moment, moving on. So you got the Pharisees weren't very political, they were religious, not always, but they were religious. They did believe in the Bible, but again, they were incredibly legalistic. And what makes this all the more complicated is you've got these two groups of people all of a sudden who, by all nature, never work well together, find a commonality. And that commonality is Jesus, but it's to murder him. And so you have these guys coming together. They hate each other, but we hate Jesus. So let's Join forces to see what we can do and they're wondering what do we do with jesus and so caiaphas makes that comment that you know nothing at all nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish now what caiaphas is saying get this it's both blasphemous and sinister he's basically telling the guys at this little gathering like you got you guys don't know anything you don't know anything at all. Don't you get it? It's actually quite simple. Either Jesus has to die or the nation's gonna die. Either we kill him or we're all gone. This place, everything we've worked so hard, the nation, the temple, our positions, it's expedient that one man should die for the nation. And those are the footnotes of John, the author, 51 and 52. But God is actually gonna take Caiaphas' blasphemous comment into something prophetic cuz not only is Jesus going to die for the nation's sake folks he's going to die for the world the world is going to be redeemed through the blood of one man and they don't know that yet and so there it is the council they concluded all right Jesus has to die or we're done the nation's going to crumble verse 53 and then from that day on they plotted to put him to death and at this and at this point I should say this is when their real political power is being in forest. We got to do something about Jesus. And then we'll finish with these last verses. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He actually went away from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. There he remained with his people. Because again, Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come, that the cross is on the horizon, but not yet. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near and many went from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So this means it's the last days before the coming Passover, which tells us that Jesus' coming betrayal, trial, and crucifixion is way closer. A lot of times when you read through the Gospels, I mean, this is just halfway through the Gospel of John, but at this point we're approaching, if you've gone through the Gospel of John, Jesus' last week. The last week is what the, half, the last half of John chapter, of John's gospel basically covers. So they sought Jesus. They spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will, will, will he come to the feast? Verse 57. Both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Again, Sadducees, Pharisees working together. They found a cause, commonality. Jesus, let's murder him. And Jesus, he is—he's heading down to the Jordan River, and he's not going to stay in Jerusalem very long. Or I should say, he wasn't in there very long until after Jesus, after Lazarus's resurrection. And then when he does make it back, it's his last week before his crucifixion. It's a good passage. It's a good passage of scripture, guys. And and here's the simple application before we ask these guys to come up and do worship and we take communion. If you truly believe that Jesus wants to demonstrate the impossibilities of his power in your life, get this, get this. It's It's the key part of the message. The first thing you have to do is take away the stone. You have to allow Jesus to access the very thing that you have not allowed him to access in your life. And I'm the first here to tell you as a failed, I'm not flawless. As a pastor who is so in need of Jesus, it is not only resurrection power accessible to my own life, I'm here to tell you that I, in the same way, we stand on, on the same page. Let's work together. Let's find a commonality to work together to allow Jesus to demonstrate those impossibilities. And then we can participate in the miracles and then we can help take people's old lifestyles of their cloths that they wore and we can take them off and help them take it off. And we can watch that old life become new. And some of you might feel like you're beyond help or you know someone who's beyond help. Oh, there's still time to take away the stone. There's still time to take away the stone. Hmm. Let's come before the Lord. Let's have the worship team come up. Lord, we do just thank you again that not only do you have access to our hearts, Lord, as we're about to partake in communion, Oh, you you tell us a very important thing, or at least Paul told us that when we take it, that we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner to examine ourselves. And Jesus, we know that even before... You went to the cross and you're having that last supper with the disciples and you, and you demonstrated them to do this as, as, for, as often as you do it, to do it in remembrance of you, of what you did at the cross. And so, Lord, I thank you for the blood that was spilt that in and of itself becomes the propitiation, the very reason, the remedy for sin. Your blood was spilt at Calvary. And you did say that. You said this was your blood of the new everlasting covenant and your body that was broken, this piece of bread we're going to eat. It's going to remind us of your body that not only was just demolished and, and just destroyed, but it was beaten and bruised on our behalf. And so Lord, I pray as we're about to examine ourselves, oh, that we'd take away the stone, that you'd access our heart fully. We love you and we praise you and we thank you.